0: Hey there, welcome along to this midweek episode of the High Performance Podcast, our second episode this week and we're doing this because so many people have been getting in touch um, just saying they want more from the podcast so we decided to do exactly that. As always um, we couldn't be doing this without our founding partners Lotus Cars. They're coming to the end I'm sad to say of the Elise and the Exige 2 of the most beautiful cars they've ever designed. Um, And you can get all the details on the final production runs of those cars by heading to lotuscars.com. I just really want to say a big thanks to everyone once again for sharing the podcast. We are now getting hundreds of thousands of downloads every single week. And I honestly believe that that is entirely down to all of you that listen to the pod, sharing it with other people. We got a really nice message in just a couple of days ago from Orange Chair Crew who said, what a find. Anyone who's ever had a challenging time needed to work on their mental health side or work out a bit more about themselves. This is for you. Also fascinating insights if you work in leadership or a team environment. Um, And obviously what we saw was a man not in a team environment, but a man competing on his own who had a really difficult time at the weekend. uh, Josh Warrington, who was our guest on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was so hard to sit and watch him. It was just horrible, wasn't it? The punishment he took in that boxing ring, Um, particularly against the backdrop of knowing what he said on this podcast about his desire and his approach and his ability. And I think it's yet another reminder that the people that join us on the High Performance Podcast don't always have all the answers. They don't always get it right. But I think that's what's important about this podcast. We are here to remind you that struggles and failures and setbacks are not full stops. They're just commas. it's time for this week's story today's episode is a man who just like josh Warrington, is looking to be a world champion once again and he's going to get the chance to do that in just a couple of days however before he enters the ring once more this week's guest sat down with us as he joined us on the high performance podcast Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, delving into the minds of the planet's most successful artists, visionaries, entrepreneurs and sports stars with one aim, to unlock the things they've learned and apply them to your life. Professor Damien Hughes, expert in high-achieving team cultures, is with me as ever. And Damien, look, you grew up in a boxing household and and our guest is a boxing household name. So
2: this is is an interesting one for you. Yeah, I can't wait, Jake. I've been looking forward to uh, meeting our guest uh, today. I was reminded of um, when we were doing some of the research, um, I went through some of my old notes that I did a book years ago on uh, the middleweight boxing champion Marvin Hagler and there was a quote uh, around him that reminded me of our guest where he said that boxing doesn't develop character but it certainly reveals it and I'm really looking forward to meeting this particular character and finding out a bit more about his story.
0: Great. Well, let's find out then what boxing revealed um, about this world champion. In fact, a former two-weight world champion. However, it doesn't stop there. His ambition now is to become a three-weight world champion. However, at 33 and after a career lasting over a decade, how does he retain the fire? How does he remain relentless? And what values does he believe have seen him conquer the world? It's a delight to welcome to the High Performance Podcast, Carl Frampton. Carl, welcome to the pod.
3: Thanks for having me on, boys.
0: So, let's start where we always do. In your mind, what is high performance? Oh,
3: high performance. Um, it's in sport, obviously. Um, it's what I do. It's, it's the, the very elite. It's the very top level. Um, I was, when I was an amateur, I was on the Irish high performance setup. That was the name of the outfit as amateurs. And the, the goal was always Olympic qualification. Um, that wasn't something I was able to succeed in. But I did try. Um, I was always suited to the professional style of of boxing, I suppose. But um, it's high performance to me just means the elite, the the best, the best in the world.
0: So at that young age, when you first started boxing, I always think of, you know, when you see the commitment and the dedication that boxing takes, how did you work on creating the mindset of a boxer rather than the mindset of of a young lad?
3: Oh, I don't know. That, that was difficult. I think it just kind of, I, I don't really, I was always kind of, I was very determined in anything that I'd done. So I don't think I created this mindset. I think it was always something that I had. And I started boxing very, very young. I was only seven years old and probably a bit too young, if I'm being honest. Like I, I wouldn't have my kids boxing at seven. But um, I was always determined to win and succeed. And, you know, while that was boxing, playing football, playing rugby for the school, believe it or not. <laughs> um, anything i done, I, I wanted to win. So that, I think that mindset was always something that I had. There was an age there when I hit about 16 as an amateur where I started to maybe go the other way and start to do things that 16-year-olds do and not train as much as I wanted or I should have been training. I was uh, hanging around the parks and, and having an odd beer and stuff. And I saw a bit of a, a blip for about two years, and, and guys were beating me who should not have been beating me. Um, and I just, you know, I was I was 16 years old, but I, I was kind of sensible enough to understand that why I was losing these fights is because I wasn't putting the I wasn't committed as I should have been, and that was a, that was a big change for me. After that point, I just kind of knuckled down. I always had the dream of becoming a world champion as a pro. And you know, I've I've achieved that and, and a little bit more.
0: That, that that's interesting, Damien, isn't it? That at, at that age, not only did Carl, after almost a decade as an amateur boxer, find himself going off the rails, but also was able to pull himself back.
2: Just that level of self awareness is uh is pretty exceptional at that age. Now, I know you come from um, the uh, Tigers Bay. Carl, what did that community teach you that you're still using today at the elite levels of boxing? What lessons did you learn?
3: Um, Tigers Bay. It's so it's it's actually right in the middle of Belfast. It's very very close to the city centre. Um, it's it's an area that gets its fair amount of criticism, um, unfairly at times. I I feel, um, and obviously there's there's a few bad eggs uh, like there is everywhere, but there's so many good people in Tigers Bay. Um, I my mum and dad were always very generous people although they never had much um i think a lot of people around me were always very generous as well and um i think i think the morals of a lot of working class people are are very high and it's something that is kind of overlooked sometimes
2: so what do you mean by that what, like when you say the morals there's
3: they're, they're, they're good people and they're they're generous a lot of people don't have much money um in these places where i where i come from i didn't have any money my, my parents didn't have any money but they would always like try to help other people if they needed. I suppose it learned me a lot. It's taught me how to grow up and be a man. Boxing as well. Then, obviously, the club that I came from was a club in Tigers Bay called Midland. Um, it taught me so much more as well. Um, and I owe, I owe, I suppose, Tigers Bay, the area that I come from, and my boxing background as an amateur. Um, I owe would I everything, really.
2: But what specifically did it teach you?
3: Boxing, I know, definitely taught me respect. It taught me about, I suppose, self-discipline as well. I had a trainer called Billy McKee, an amateur trainer, um, who, in my opinion, is one of the greatest men the world has ever seen. Done anything that I ever needed him to do for me, but he was still very strict. He wouldn't have taken any shit or let me mess around too much. I think I, I learned respect and I learned to respect him first before I respected really anyone else. Like at that age of 16 to 18, where I started to go a wee bit wayward, I was always conscious of Billy McKee finding out and frightened of Billy McKee finding out before my own parents. And that was just, I just—I didn't want to disappoint him more than anybody else in the world. And I suppose that respect is something that I still have for, for Billy, who's a, who I see as a great man, but respect is is probably if you want to pick out anything um that boxing has taught me respect has got to be number one
2: and what about the area then
3: it was a tough area like i said before it was an area that got its fair bit of criticism full of good people and a lot of people not from that area don't understand that it's full of good people always a bad impression of it so i lived on an interface so tigers bay uh was separated it's a loyalist uh unionist neighborhood separated by one street to the republican catholic neighborhood which is the new lodge so i've seen so much violence so much trouble especially in the marching seasons and i've seen a kid actually get blew up i've seen the aftermath of him being blown up and i've seen people being shot at i've seen buses being hijacked and parked across the road and burnt out and i just seen things i probably shouldn't have seen as a, as a young a young lad and things that were kind of exciting although they were dangerous they were exciting and it would have been very very easy for me to get involved in that but because of boxing and because of my parents i think i made the decision myself as well to stay away from all that and understand what was right from what was wrong so i'm going to link that back to boxing that was really boxing more so than the area but the area i could have went a much different direction
0: Let's talk a bit more about your upbringing and your mum, who is famously stone-faced when you fight. Um, There was a moment, though, where she hugged you on the way to a ring before the Martinez fight. um, And you said it was the first time she'd ever hugged you. I wonder whether that stoicism from your parents has been a a, a helpful thing in your career.
3: Do you know what? It may have been. um, It's strange. I I say that and I make make her sound heartless, but, but she's not. It's just something that as a family when i was a kid growing up and i don't know what many other people around tigers bay that were hugging their parents as well i won a, my first Irish senior title my dad just shook my hand when i get out of the ring and <laughs> it's just but it did it didn't it just felt normal for me it doesn't mean i love my parents any less or, or they love me any less it's just i think that's just working class belfast i remember a f- funny story actually so obviously Barry mcguigan my former manager me, me and my cousin were watching uh one of my old fights i think i may have won a Celtic title and we were watching this footage on dvd in my granda's house with my granda. after i won the fight my granda stood up and tried to shake mcguigan's hand and this was caught on camera and mcguigan hugged him and mcguigan just stood stiff as a board <laughs> and uh my cousin started laughing at mcguigan saying well look at you hugging mcguigan and stuff and he like got in a big like he fell out with us for about a week and says i don't hug men and just went away and left and sat in the kitchen i think it's just just a thing from belfast and i think that background probably helped me have the kind of mindset i suppose that that you need to get to the very top in boxing do
0: you think in many ways it helped to build
3: resilience in you potentially yeah um i i see it and this is a a conversation i have with with my wife at times that i see it my own kids who are have a different upbringing than i had um they're very a lot safer than 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 i was in in the area that we live in now they're mollycoddled a lot more and i feel like they are softer than i was and they're softer than my wife was as a kid who also came from a pretty pretty rough area so i think it probably has it has added a bit of resilience to to me yeah
2: do you hug your children carl
3: i i'm yeah I'm, i'm i'm Probably over the top with them, a a bit soft, I suppose, my wife says at times. And I think a lot of that's down down to me being away from home and training all the time. So the the, the kids walk over me. Like, I I understand that. I know that. And and they they get away with it. And I let them do it because I I feel like if if I'm away training for two weeks and I get home for a couple of days, you don't want to be the bad dad shouting and, and laying down the law. So I'm I'm very, very soft with, with my kids, yeah.
0: The problem we have with children these days, and I feel that a lot of children now are growing up in houses and lives much nicer than the ones that their parents grew up in. The issue is to create that resilience, isn't it? Matthew McConaughey joined us on this podcast and he spoke about his kids climbing trees, Khan, and he said, look, I, I allow them to get to a certain point and then I start to panic a little bit, but you have to let them fall. You have to let them push their own boundaries, what do you and your wife do to create that resilience in your own kids? Do you allow your children to fail?
3: Yeah, we do allow them to feel. I, I have a young boy, especially. So I, I have two kids. My my young girl Carla is ten, and my boy is is six, Rossa. They're different characters, but I he's a bit more adventurous, I suppose, and a wee bit more daring than the than the, the my daughter is, which is probably normal for young boys. Um, but yeah, certainly I allowed him to feel and. Um, you know, they kind of have to pick themselves up and and get on with things in in life and and everything that they do. Another thing that I always love to do is, I have friends still in Tigers Bay who we go and visit all the time. I love bringing my kids to Tigers Bay into that rough area and letting them go into the street with other kids and mess about and, and see what happens. And I consciously, make that decision to to sometimes go over to my friends and let the kids just go on see you later i'll see you in an hour or two and see what happens
2: so if you could articulate Carl like what are the values that you would want to carry with you from tigers bay that you would want your children to assimilate as part of their character without necessarily having to see the things you've seen or endure the struggle that you've endured
3: i suppose just a bit of toughness and like i my daughter had a little bit of problem at school and she's very soft. She'd come home, you know, there's another girl who was giving her a little bit of grief and, and she'd come home and cry and it would really affect her bad. I'm sure when I was a kid in school that these things were happening to me. I know there were for a, for a fact because, you know, I'm I'm a lot shorter than the average man and I was a lot shorter than the average child as well. So I always get picked on for being small, but it wasn't something that I was dwelling on when I, when I get back home and my daughter does that. So I think that, really toughness and inner toughness and i suppose a self-belief and um resilience like we spoke about is is what i'm trying to implement there when i when i let them wander the streets of tigers bay
0: can you remember what you said to your daughter when she came home
3: yeah i did and and i i'd I'd probably i don't think it's a it's it's well it's not labeled as the right thing to say but i i I tell my daughters and i tell my son as well look if if someone lifts their hand you in school do it do it back and they're and they're worried about they're always worried about consequences from the teachers. But I tell them, don't worry about that. This is probably the wrong thing to be saying, but this is what I say. And I'm being honest. And I tell them that I'll deal with the consequences and I'll deal with the teachers. But you tell the teacher, if somebody hits you, you're allowed to hit them back. And I said so. So that's um, that's exactly what, what I said.
0: The challenge with that, though, is you also have to teach your kids that in life there are going to be consequences that you're not going to be there to look after. Mm-hmm. That's part of the, yeah. That's part of the issue, isn't it?
3: Yeah, of course it is. And um, I have a, a sister-in-law who is a teacher also, and, and she has a different opinion as to what I what I tell my kids. But I know my own kids and um, I know that my daughter especially is, is an easy touch. She's very, very soft. She's a lovely, lovely kid. She would do anything for anyone. But there, I think there's other kids who could take advantage of that and... I uh, just like her, before she goes into high school, I just like her to toughen up a little bit.
0: I guess it's a reminder, Damien, in life that things happen to us and actually what's important isn't the things that are happening but our reaction to them.
2: Absolutely. There's always that gap between the event itself and that pause between how we respond to it. And I think it's in that pause and the decisions we make that define the roots in life and the, and, and the places that we go to. Which leads me Carl to to understand that boxing's an incredibly tough sport I know um, through my own family background in terms of how a lot of guys that from tough areas often do it often to escape the places that they've come from to give them to give themselves and their families a better chance a better life that you're obviously providing now for your kids. What age did you make that decision then that you were gonna throw yourself into boxing? And do this uh, as a career
3: really it was probably about 18 or 19 when i was seven and i started boxing i was good like i used to when i had all these fights i used to i used to win most of them and people used to say there's i used to be called like the boxer a lot of people didn't know who i was in tiger's Bay. they just called me the boxer they seen a young kid with a backpack walking down to the boxing club so i was decent and but i was also decent at football um and it was kind of up until seven to about fifteen, I was kind of thinking, one of these one of these sports will be my job. I was obviously much better at the boxing than I was at the football. Then I had them kind of dodgy years about between sixteen and eighteen, but after that, it was it was then I just realized that I'm gonna I'm gonna knuckle down. And there was a there was a, a fight that I had. I boxed in the Irish Championships as an amateur against a guy called Kevin Fantasy. And he beat me, and he did. He beat me fair and square. But he, he should never have been beating me. Like, and I and I I understood it was because I wasn't dedicated and I wasn't training properly. Christine was my girlfriend at the time. She's now my wife. And I went back home and I remember having a conversation with her and saying, "I think I'm going to pack this game in. Like, what what is the point in boxing if I can't beat guys like Kevin Fantasy? Like, I'm not going to do anything here." And she kind of. I had a conversation with her and she said, look, just just have another go next year. Give give it another blast. Make sure you're training properly. And I did that and I drew Kevin Fantasy the next year in the quarterfinals of the All-Irelands and I stopped him, his corner through the tallying. So I knew that with proper training and proper dedication, I can actually do something. And that was a massive, massive turning point for me. So that was when I realized that boxing is what I want to be I want to be a boxer and I want this uh, to be my job
2: but what was it that boxing was going to give you so apart from being good at it and you could Mm. see that there was a career there's few tougher ways to make a living than there is of stepping into the ring and the dedication and sacrifice so what was it that boxing gave you that meant that you were going to dedicate yourself to it
3: well I was good at it and and it gave me the opportunities to you, you see you just think that professional boxing is full of people that are multi-millionaires and and they're making a fortune i understand that not to be the case now i've been very lucky in my career what i've done i've made money i own my own house i've got some money in the bank i knew that it was giving me an opportunity to get to the very top but i was a kid and i had a kind of probably i didn't i didn't think about it correctly you know to be a professional footballer you need to be very good to be a professional boxer you don't necessarily have to be that good but to be a world champion you do have to be good I had the ability to be a world champion and make some money and I always wanted even when I was a young man what I wanted was like I lived in a terraced house no garden no front garden I had about 10 yards of a back garden a little concrete pavement thing out the back I always wanted a semi-detached house with a side garden that's what I wanted and and I've done a bit better than that so I feel like I feel like I've done all right.
2: I often talk about the three levels of motivation. Some is desperation to escape from a situation. Then we get to rationalisation where you've gone, I'm good at this and I can make a few good at it. And then the third level of, in, of motivation is where we act through inspiration. We do it because yeah. we just really love it. And I'm interested, what keeps you going to training camp five days a week away from your family? What gets you at 33 um, during the struggle?
3: There's a few things and... and one of them would be my my kids and and make like want my kids to be proud, and I I understand I, I think they'll already be proud of me, and I suppose when they get a bit older they'll say you know they'll be able to say my dad was a two weight world champion and he was he was a decent fighter and and be proud of what I've done, but I want so much more. I want to be a three weight world champion. I want to create this legacy as well, which is another another thing for me that's very important to go down as a very good fighter, but the greatest fighter to ever come from the island of Ireland. And one of the greatest British fighters, if I become a 3 world champion, like, I, I you know, I, I don't like to blow my trumpet or anything, but you you got to be up there with some of the top fighters that Britain's ever produced. And I've done it the hard way. Like, I beat every fighter that I beat to win a world title have been the champion. There was no easy kind of fights where there's, there's no champion or a champion's vacated and two guys just fight each other. I've done it the pretty hard way, and I've still got one step to go to become a 3 world champion. But making my kids proud and legacy are probably the two the two most important things now for me
0: i'm really interested in this um three-way world champion plan um because i just want to understand your mindset for getting there we talk often on this podcast carl about fault versus responsibility that loads of things happen to us in life but there's no point in looking for blame and looking for fault it's about taking responsibility so if it doesn't happen Will you take one hundred percent responsibility and total accountability that it was on your shoulders? Because then, yeah, equally, absolutely. if it does happen, it's it was down to you.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and, I, and I've lost a couple of times in my career, and you've seen with my reaction after performances against Leo Santa Cruz and and Josh Warrington. And I, I I've taken full responsibility um, for them defeats. The Warrington defeat, which was the most recent, um, Josh. Won that fight (laughs) by a country male. I kind of done well to come back in the middle rounds a wee bit, but uh, at a disastrous start, and it was all down to me. It was, in my mind, Josh Warrington, a very, very good fighter, but there was nothing on his record to suggest that he was a puncher. And I went in thinking, he's not going to be able to hurt me. It's going to be a tough fight, but he's not going to be able to hurt me and i never got anything so wrong in my life he hurt me in the first round he hurt me in the second round he hurt me a number of times in the fight and i kind of stepped up after it zero excuses i got it wrong um on the night and josh won the fight and yeah i think you have to be able to accept responsibility and i'll be going to this fight as prepared as i can be i really
0: like the idea of a zero excuses mindset but it's not just about zero excuses, is it? It's about putting it right as well, so it doesn't happen again. So, mm-hmm. what have you? What did you do in the immediate aftermath of that fight, both physically and mentally, to make sure that that there's not a repeat of that? What's your? What's the process that you go through?
3: I genuinely thought about retiring after the Josh Warrington defeat, and I suppose probably for a couple of weeks after the fight, I in my head I was a I was a retired fighter. Yeah, I was I was down in the dumps and disappointed with my performance and. I kind of then tried to think rationally about it. And I, I understood that the reasons why I lost the fight. No disrespect to Josh Warrington. I don't I don't know if he's a better fighter than me. He's a very good fighter. But I, I got it so wrong on that night. It played into his hands. And the disastrous start that I had, it was just hard to come back. And when I thought about it rationally, I knew that there was a lot more to come. It would be hard to finish a career on a defeat like that when you've had such a great career. And I just knew it wasn't me. I was performing better in camp. Like in lead up to the fight, I was flying, I was sparring well. But on the night, I just got it it very, very wrong.
2: So can I ask you, Carl, where does ego kick in now? Because ego can be incredibly powerful when it's working with you but it can be incredibly dangerous when it it sort of blinds you to to where you are and what you've got. And you're in a sport that's littered with plenty of examples of people that that haven't got out at the right time or haven't recognised it. So how do you counter against that and and making the same mistake that plenty of others have done?
3: I've got a a plan in my head, and I I don't want to give that away yet, but – I, I I do I do have a plan as to what I want to do in this game, and you're a hundred percent correct in what you say. There is so many fighters that stay in this game way too long, and you can see them fighters, and you can hear them fighters and their voices, and when they speak, and they've got a slurred speech. And I know this is a dangerous, a dangerous, dangerous sport, and I understand the punishment that I've been taking. And this is what happens in the build up the fights. Like it's not just the fight that you have. There's hundreds of rounds of sparring. And getting bashed about the head. It's it can't be good for anybody, but it's a sport that I have chosen to do. But I understand there's a, a, a time limit and there's a time when you should get out. And I feel like I'll know when that time is. It's not too far away if I'm being if I'm being honest. I think it's it's close enough, but um like I'm thirty three now. I'll be thirty four by the time I fight Jamil Hurin. I'm not gonna be boxing when I'm thirty six. Let's just say it.
2: So Jake and I have spoken in the past with Say, so um, a number of our guests that we've had on, Carl, where we, we've introduced the idea of a memento mori, which is something from Roman emperors used to have, or the more far-sighted ones that have somebody on their shoulder that would just be the person that would tell them the truth, remind them that they were mortal or that they were infallible and they could make mistakes. So who's the person beyond yourself that would say to you, Carl, you need to get out now. Carl, enough is enough.
3: I think I've got a few people my trainer jamie moore would tell me that and that's important to have a trainer who who knows when it's the right time to get out i think i'd be able to tell myself if i'm being honest as well and i know for a fact that my wife would tell me that as well um she's yeah she would she would she would love me to retire but for different reasons but she's the most honest person i know well her and billy mckee who i spoke about earlier in the show i, I tried to have a little bit of madara cake after my dinner yesterday and she didn't let me let's just say that, <laughs> and uh,
2: so so what did they say to you then in that period after the Josh Warrington fight where you you said that you decided that you were going to
3: retire? Well, she she wanted me to retire, but she wants me to be at home more with, with the kids, and she doesn't want to see me talking to myself or my voice slurred or anything like that. So I had a good deep conversation with her, and I put my points across, and we kind of came to the agreement that I could still win a world title and I believe that I can't win a world title Jamie Moore seeing what I'd done in the camp and knowing what I'd done in the camp leading up to the Warrington fight knew that that wasn't the performance that he or I was expecting and he knew that there was still a lot more left we had these discussions and um, I just decided that and I suppose with their advice that there's there's still a bit there's still a bit left and and I want to that, that legacy thing that I keep talking about. I want to I create that.
0: What's really interesting about this is that we, we speak often on the podcast about people making decisions like that and the reasons for them. You've done so much, right? You've achieved great things. How do you know that you won't achieve this and then want something else? Because you're obviously still chasing something that all these years mm-hmm. of boxing so brilliantly and winning world titles has still left something that needs to be filled, a gap that needs yeah. to be filled.
3: Yeah, I, and I think... A lot of it came from the Warrington defeat as well, um, but I, I I know what I want. Uh, like I want to become a three-weight world champion, and and this was a, a thought process that I had when I spoke to my team after the Warrington defeat. I spoke to them and, and they suggested potentially moving up weight, and I feel we can get you a shot at Jamel Herring, who was the ch- who has been a champion for a number of years. We can get you a shot at Jamel Herring for the the super featherweight title. When I heard that, it was like, right, that's the next goal. I I can become a three-weight world champion, no doubt in my mind. So that's enough for me. I'll be honest enough to tell you that that's an incredible achievement to be able to do that, to become a three-weight world champion. I can't become a four-weight world champion because I'm too small. So three-weight, three-weight is my limit and and I'd be happy, delighted if I can do that. And I know I can't.
0: So are we talking here then about the benefit of defeat, the benefit that comes with failing?
3: Well, yeah, I suppose we are. I never, never really thought about that um, until you've just mentioned it there. But the defeat that Josh warned me a hell of a lot. It learned me to never take a fighter for granted. It taught me, I suppose, never to never to expect that someone's not going to be able to punch in this game and, and walk into a, a storm of, of blows that kind of shoot me right in my boots. But it also taught me that I'm a better fighter than I was that night and a bad performance
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. But
2: well, can I take you back to that 2006 Ulster final? Because that was, to me, the first significant defeat on that I know from your biography, Carl, because it stopped you going to the Commonwealth Games That's as an right. amateur, that was a big thing. What did you learn? from that defeat which you think was a springboard for you to go on and have such success as a professional?
3: Yeah, that that was another big one. I, I, I lost to a guy called Ren Lindbergh who who was a good fighter, but at the time I was I was Irish champion. I was one of the top fighters in Europe as an amateur. And I wasn't I I wasn't expected to lose to him. I think that I just won a, a multi nations tournament representing Ireland the week before it. I beat a Russian in the semi-final, and then I boxed a Welsh guy in the final, and stopped him on the twenty points rule, which was if you go twenty points in front, the fight automatically is stopped. And I beat him twenty nil. So I was flying. I was in the form of life, and I came up expecting to beat this kid, Rand Lindbergh. And he's very awkward and maybe a bit overconfident for me. And he beat me, and he went to the Commonwealth Games. And that was something. I'm a I'm a proud Northern Irishman. I would have loved to have went to the Commonwealth Games for Northern Ireland, but uh, uh, because of the defeat to Limburg, I-, I couldn't go. I remember going home and crying. My eyes out actually in bed that night, like really upset about that one. So that that was another similar similar scenario with Fantasy 1. I needed to knuckle down and, and, and try a bit more. suppose I did a bit, but I still wasn't putting the full effort in until I lost to Fantasy. And then the year after that, and I had the discussion with Christine, that was the time when I really put the head down and, and focused.
0: When we sit here now talking, do you have any doubt at all that you won't be a three-weight world champion?
3: You always have doubts, like going into every fight. Like you're, you're, you know, you're fighting another man. Anything can happen. You have to put this image across that you're extremely confident. But for this fight, I, I don't know what it is. I just, I feel extremely confident. I just, I just don't feel like I'm going to let him take this opportunity away from me. Uh, and I feel like everything needs to be. Needs to be perfect on the night. Like, it's going to be a tough fight. I understand that. Jamil Harain is a, for a super featherweight, he's a monster of a man. He's, he's a big guy. He's a big lump, bigger than anyone I've ever fought. But I, I, I don't know. I just have this inner belief that I'm winning that fight. And I think, I feel like I'm going to win it convincingly. Like, I genuinely believe that. But we'll, we'll see on the night, I suppose.
0: So did you feel the same before the fight with Josh Warrington?
3: No, I didn't reasoning behind that was because I was a slight favorite going into the fight against Warrington I'm an underdog and into this fight and I don't think there's as much pressure on me this time it took me a while to be able to watch the Warrington performance back and when I watched it you just look at how relaxed I was like I'm never I'm normally up on my toes and you know reactive and a reactive type of fighter but I was just so relaxed and that was because I had the in my head I thought that it's going to be a long fight he's tough he's durable but he can't punch, so he's not going to be able to hurt me. And I think that's why I was so relaxed. Jamel Herring, being the specimen that he is, I know that he will be able to hurt me if he hits me. Um, So I need to be completely switched on for this one.
0: Can Damien and I talk to you about pre-fight fears? Because it's something that we never really get to talk to fighters about. Because normally by the time you get to that stage, they're so close to the fight, they don't project anything other than complete and utter self-belief that they're going to win because that's Mm. a power. Mm. So how palpable is the fear before a fight or the anxiety before a fight? And for you, when is when does that tend to be at its
3: height? Final session, the gym, the ring
0: walk, the bell?
3: Mm, I'd, say, I'd say probably for me, it's it's, it's being in the change room before before the ring walk. So actually before you do that, and at that moment when you're warming up and you're trying to get psyched up, you have to display this level of supreme confidence as fighters. I think everybody has doubts, and, and if, if they tell you otherwise, I, I genuinely think they're talking out their backside. I think that people have doubts, and you're worried about what your opponent's going to bring. You're worried about his punching power because these you know, small gloves, anybody can get hurt, anybody can get dropped or put down. But that all kind of goes away, I suppose, for me on the ring walk. And when, the, when I'm in the ring, then I'm ready to go, I'm ready to fight. I'm just thinking about winning the fight. And there's a specific moment. There's a, a TV guy normally would give you a knock and say like, one minute to go, guys, do the ring walk. That's the moment where you're like, mm. you know, this is it. It's happening soon.
2: So what preparation do you do to, to to counter that or prepare yourself for that then, Carl?
3: I don't know if I have any preparation for it. You know it's going to come. You know that's happening. I have, something that I do is I, I put pictures of my kids on the dressing room wall and I do that because I want to remember the reasons why I'm doing this and one of the reasons why I'm doing this. and I always give them a little kiss before I do that ring walk. We've seen Anthony Joshua recently in his fights with all the, the kind of stuffy imagery on the walls that he's put up around on his ring walk and it's just about remembering different things and remembering why you're doing it. I don't have the budget that Anthony Joshua has to put all the things up along the whole way along the tunnel but A couple of pictures will do me on the wall.
0: What I find interesting about this, and can I just caveat this story by saying I'm not comparing going on live television to going into a boxing ring, right, for someone to punch me. I am not (laughs) doing that because literally you can't compare the two. But going on the, I think we all have different thresholds, right, of things that we require to get our adrenaline going. I don't need to do what you do to get that hit of adrenaline. Going on the TV is enough for me. That is me at my capacity and at my limit and and I remember um the first time I did a Grand Prix with David Coulthard we came off air and I looked at him and I said what a rush doing live telly hey and he looked at me deadpan and he just went son I've driven through a rouge wheel to wheel with Michael Schumacher that's not a rush <laughs> and I'm like okay fine but what I because it because for me it does put me at my limits and maybe less so now than it used to but I I failed my a levels right to get a To end up in television. So as I could hear the PA saying on air in five, four, I used to just take a breath like and say, listen, you're here just because you failed your A-levels. Like my answer was to play it down completely. It was nothing. If I had images, I think, of my family or a reminder of how many people are watching or what's at stake, I think that would almost tip me over. So I wonder whether you need that little bit extra or whether actually there are things that you say to yourself just to remind yourself that this doesn't matter too much. It is only a fine. It's only a, an evening at work or or whether you're the total opposite and it's about building up, building up.
3: No, nah, I suppose it's about it's about what you know. And and I'm like I, I started to do a little bit of punditry and, and TV work, I suppose not not to your standard but i'm doing bits and pieces here and and it's it's nerve-wracking for me because it's 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 something that i don't know but i know how to fight i know what boxing's about and i still get that adrenaline rush and there's no there's no better feeling in the world than winning a fight than winning a world title than doing it in your own backyard it's an amazing ad- adrenaline rush but it's up and it's down and it's over again the next day and you're just back to normal back to normal school life or family life but um you're you're a, you're a tv presenter so people expect you to be good at it so you have to be good you have to perform i'm a boxer people expect me to be good at it so i have to perform i'll go to my comfort zone and do a bit of punditry work and i balls it up who cares that's 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 the way i look at it <laughs>
2: Carl, I, can I ask you another question about about fighting? Because this always intrigues me about boxers that don't contemplate defeat. And I know it has to be at a, like a, an appropriate moment in your training camp, but I often think you can spot the boxers that have gone through the, the worst-case scenario planning in their head. You know when they get put down for an eight count, the fighters that jump up determined to fake that they haven't been hurt, versus the guys that use that eight seconds wisely. You know, they'll they'll draw the breath, they'll get up on one knee, they look at the corner, like they're ready to weather the storm that's coming. First of all, do you engage in that kind of scenario planning? And if so, when do you do that in, in training camp?
3: Well, I, I don't know if I, I like, sit down and, and think about that consciously. Like I don't, I don't know if that's in my head, but I understand that you can be hurt in this game. It's something that I always, I always have in my head, and even when I'm sparring as well, like I, I, I train extremely hard and I know that my sparring partners and my opponents that I'm fighting, for the most anyway, I'm going to be fitter than these guys, no matter who they are. Um, Jamel Herring, I'm going to be fitter than Jamel Herring. I know that for a fact because I know that he's killing himself to do the weight. So in my head, during the fight, when I start to tire and feel that oh, it's getting a bit tough, I always think he's feeling worse than me, 100%. And, That's that's a little trick that I have and and, and I employ, I suppose, in in fights and even in training and sparring.
0: And what do you want from your corner? Because I'm always fascinated by the the work that goes on in a corner in a fight. It's such a short amount of time. And I, Mm -hmm. I was watching a fight just recently. I can't remember who the fighter was, but he was struggling, right, tactically. You'll know who he is. And his coach just kept shouting lions at him. Lions in the camp. Who's that?
3: That's Anthony Yard.
0: That's it. So I was watching the Anthony Yard fight and I'm thinking... He needs you to help him here. He needs... And the guy goes, Lions in the camp, Lions in... And I'm thinking, either he's asked for that and he thinks that's beneficial or his trainer thinks that that is beneficial. I couldn't work it out. I don't know whether it makes more sense to you, but I just wonder what you need in the corner.
3: He got a bit of... For a bit of criticism, the coach did after that. and, And I suppose it was correct because your fighter is hasn't changed his tactics he was losing a fight against a guy with one hand one simple bit of advice he could have given was cut the ring off as he moves around to uh the opponent was moving to his right just cut the ring off simple but he just followed him around the ring in circles the whole time and and that shows you the difference in level between there's there's very good trainers and there's very bad trainers in terms of good trainers probably 10% of boxing trainers these days are, are very good and the rest are are kind of PT guys and guys who kind of know a little bit about boxing, but someone to be able to talk you right through a fight. There's not too many of them. And when I go back to the corner, I'm looking clear, concise instructions, maybe a couple of things, because you've got a minute to bring all this in. Normally the crowd's going nuts. There's a lot of noise. You may have been hurt. You want a coach that's going to let you relax, sit down for 10 seconds, not say anything for about 10 seconds until you're you understand where you are and you're relaxed. And then give you a few instructions. That's it. Like simple instructions that will help you throughout the next round. And um, Tundi, who is Yard's trainer, wasn't capable of doing that. And there's so many other coaches not capable of giving correct instructions. So I'm lucky that I'm with a good team. And Jimmy Moore, who who is very sensible, very calm in the corner. I remember one thing he did say to me is in the Warrington fight, actually, he asked me, was I okay? And I said, Yes. So you do that as a boxer. But he says to me, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done myself. And I remember thinking, that's the type of stuff that I want to hear and that's what I like. And I'm I'm trusting this guy. And the advice that he's given me is he's been in this situation and I'm gonna believe it.
2: But sometimes, though, Carl, do you not feel that this is a pet hate of mine when I watch boxing, is that you get a lot of trainers that are brave on behalf of their fighters. Whereas I think sometimes the more difficult decision for a trainer is to pull a fighter out even if he doesn't want to because they've got a life to live well beyond the next round or that particular fight. Do you have that conversation with your trainer in terms of giving them that permission to make decisions on your behalf?
3: I don't have a conversation with him about that, but he has. I I have the understanding that if, if my trainer needs to pull me out of a fight, he will do it if he has to, if he thinks it's the right decision. I saw him do it for Tommy Coyle against Chris Algieri. And I was there ringside watching it. And Tommy was doing okay in the fight. And then he started to get hurt. And Tommy was the first guy that Jamie ever trained. So they have this unbelievable bond. Um, they love each other like like brothers. And I said, I was doing um, commentary for Five Live. And I said to Bunce, who was beside me, Steve Bunce, Jamie may pull him out here. And he did it the round after I said that. And it was the correct decision. And Tommy was an uproar. Tommy's a hard, hard man. He didn't want to be stopped, but he understood when he thought about it that that was the correct decision. And I'm never, ever going to pull out of a fight. If a ref, you know, if my if my head's falling off and the referee says, you're okay, I'm saying, okay, I'm okay. But I know I have a trainer who can make decisions that are, are for my safety. And
0: how much clarity do you have in those situations when you sit down in the corner? I just wonder how easy it is to become myopic and actually how much you can see the bigger picture how whether you i watch boxing wondering whether you guys know if you're losing the fight
3: well it it depends i suppose how brutal the fight is and and rounds that are close sometimes when you sit back and watch them on tv you realize you've you've won that round but in the moment you don't know so you like to get a bit of instruction I sometimes ask a question when I come back to the corner. Did I win that round? It has been close, and they say yes or mm, don't know. Close one, whatever. Um, but I, I like to listen, and I like to try and. And I know there's fighters who are just kind of bamboozled by everything that's going on around them. But I try, I try to be calm in them situations, and I try to take the instructions on board. I purposely try to do that, and I make sure when I sit down in the corner, I'm relaxed and I'm thinking. I'm listening to what he's saying, and I'm going to try and implement it in the next round.
2: Carl, so can I ask you about the higher you go in your career that you have done? so you start out as a boy boxing amateur in Tiger's Bay and you reach the heights that you have done of fighting for world titles and the higher you go, the more sharks and ne- nefarious or or villains start to become attracted to you yeah? And, yeah and and you've had your own high profile examples of that yeah can I ask there's... how you go about discerning whether people are good
3: characters or not? See it's, it's me, and this is something that I have talked about with my wife and other people. Like, I, I literally, if someone's nice to me for a minute, I literally think they're my best mate. This guy's a good guy. There's no way he's not. He can't be anything but a good guy. But I've learned, I suppose, from my own experiences and being burnt a little bit that not everybody is in for your best interest. And, and new guys that are coming around now are who have never been around before kind of have an ulterior motive and I think that you know who, who's I don't know how many true proper friends I have you've, you've your friends from school who'll always be your lifelong friends even though you don't see them that, that often anymore but they're still your friends and then I have another few and then I have a load of acquaintances and people who are okay but I don't have that many close friends anymore so I suppose my wife helps me when I start talking about someone, and someone, someone offers me. You know, there was a guy who, who I know a little bit, but he he tried to get me involved in um, backing him in a coffee shop. He could source this amazing coffee from South America, and we'll open a coffee shop in Belfast. And I was going to do it, and Christine, my wife, is like, "You don't fucking know this guy. What are you? What do you? And you haven't got a business brain. And I don't know anything about business, so." I just need to be careful. I need to be careful.
2: You're a smart guy. You came back after yeah. the Warrington defeat and went, "I wasn't prepared." You came back after that defeat in the Ulster finals and went, "I haven't been preparing myself properly." So you are somebody yeah. that is self aware and 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 has a look at yourself. So what have you learned from swimming in these shark infested waters that that <sighs> that will stop you making the same mistake?
3: Well, I don't. I don't know. Uh, and. I'm not that confident that I wouldn't make the same mistake again, if I'm being honest. Um, but I suppose it's good to have uh Christine in my ear at times. But there's probably a, a fine line somewhere in the middle of between how I think everybody is sound and how she hates everybody. So <laughs> 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 somewhere somewhere in the middle there.
2: But then how do you square that with Christine saying to you, Pack it in, we wouldn't you at home, we wouldn't you back around there? so she's the one that does have your best interests at heart above anyone else
3: well yeah of course she look she she would have wanted me to retire after i beat kiko martinez from a world first world title like that's i i know her and that's what she wanted or that's what she would have wanted um but she understands as well why i'm doing this and she understands that i believe i can become a world champion i think she has trust in that belief um and, and that's it really
0: and are you totally comfortable now with sacrifice I think one of the things that people listening to this podcast and um, it's likely this pod will come out around your fight just before your fight I want them to get a real understanding of the dedication and the sacrifice that inv- is involved in living the life that you live, could you just talk yeah. us through a, your sacrifice?
3: Yeah, it's, look it's, it's it's very hard, I, I'm sitting here on a on a Monday, I'm flying back to Manchester tonight, there's uh a pretty severe lockdown in Northern Ireland at the minute. Um, we're asking you not to leave your house unless it's for essential purposes, as opposed to the same in the, in the mainland UK kids can't go to school. They're being, my wife is being bombarded with kids work and schoolwork that she has to do herself because I'm not here to help her. I do not want to go away tonight um, because I don't want to leave her in the lurch and feel like she's, it's almost like I'm deserting her. Um, You sort the kids out. I'm on a way to train here. But she understands, it's going to be tough for both of us, and she understands why I'm doing it, but I, I do not want to do it. That is the biggest sacrifice that I've had to make, I think, in recent, you know, being away is always a sacrifice, but doing it now under these circumstances is extremely difficult. Um, Obviously, traveling, it isn't ideal for me to be traveling all the time with the potential to pick up COVID um, on the flights and stuff, so... I'm actually staying away a little bit more I'm traveling less I'm coming rather than coming home every weekend I'm coming home every second weekend just to reduce the chance of picking up COVID so it's tough it's so it's extremely extremely tough what I'm doing at this point in time but I have to do it and Christy understands that we'd, we'd rather there was a different way around it but there just there just isn't.
2: So- when you're halfway through a training camp, this is a period that we speak about a lot on the podcast. We, we call it the messy middle. That bit when you're too deep in training camp to go back, but you're not far enough quite to, for the adrenaline to start kicking in a fight night. How do you get through that difficult patch in the middle, Carl?
3: I think me being away from home is is something that... It's a reason why I've done it my whole career, really, as a pro. It, it, it allows me to focus on boxing. And I'm always around my team. I'm always around Jimmy and Jimmy and Nigel Travis, my trainers. Um, If I was at home training from home and staying in my own bed at night and being around the kids and and eating the same types of food as them, I don't think I would be as successful as I have been. So this is a conscious decision and something that I've always done. And I think it benefits me um, to, to be away. And when I am away, it's easier for me just to focus on the end goal, which is always the next fight.
0: Um, we've reached our quickfire questions, and actually, we were talking earlier about people that are around you. Maybe the way we ask this one would help us to get an answer from you. Three non-negotiables that you and all the people around you must buy into.
3: This may sound like a little bit. I'll give you. I'll give you one big one anyway. This may sound a little bit big-headed, and, uh, but I need. And Jimmy Moore and Neil Travis have a, a number of fears in their stable who they're all looking after i i feel like as my fight gets closer as opposed from that six week mark when there's six weeks left to the fight i need them to be there my almost like my back and call and whatever i need to be able to do that um for me um and and they they have been able to do that so that's one i can't really think of anything else even being honest if i have my trainers around me i know i always have my wife support that's that's enough for me
2: What advice would you give to a young Carl just starting out?
3: To watch out for sharks, as you said earlier on, or uh, people who um, aren't as trustworthy as you you imagine. Be careful of that and understand that there's going to be people who come around you. Suppose there's more success you get. That's the big one. Um, Just be careful of who's around you. You know, when I talk about I could say always be completely dedicated, but I have been completely dedicated to the sport. I don't think I could have been any more dedicated. And I put in so many sacrifices, and I think people understand that I they am dedicated. Another one, and this is, sounds a bit trivial, I would have learned Spanish. Imagine a young Irish kid going to America and speaking Spanish. The Mexicans would have fell in love with you. So
0: <laughs> It's never too late, mate. When you're a three-weight world champion, you can go out there, one last fight, talk Spanish. Um, Gracias, amigo. <laughs> Nada. how important is legacy to you
3: legacy is is extremely important the most important thing to me is my family above and beyond anything but after that is is legacy really and and i want i don't want to be a flesh in the pan i want i want people to talk about me in the pubs in belfast and northern ireland and ireland, the uk in 20 30 years time and remember me for a well to be a being a good man and also a great fighter.
2: And what's your one golden rule for living
3: a high performance life? These days, now. For the last three years I've been completely teetotal. And I haven't I haven't I wasn't before that. Um so for the last three years, yeah, T total. It's 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 I suppose thinking about longevity in your career, um, booze and, and everything else isn't that good for you. Look, I'm I'm as fond of a drink as a next man. But for the last three years, I've been completely teetotal. So that's that's my golden rule at this point.
0: Look, thank you so much for joining us, um, Matthew McConney. When he came on the pod, he said to us, "There is no yet. There's no arrival." I just I sort of get the sense that maybe you think when you're a three weight world champion that, that you will have arrived, or have I have I judged that wrong?
3: No, you've got that a hundred percent right. That that is that is it for me. I becoming a three weight world champion, I will have achieve more than i could have ever imagined achieving when i was a young boy boxing out of midland amateur boxing club and and this is another thing that i always say and, and I've, I've mentioned this a few times in different podcasts that if i had been granted a wish to become and i was granted this wish to become a world champion i was going to win a world title and lose it in my first defense before i turned professional i think i would have taken that so and sense have overachieved, but I know there's still a little bit more to come.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Carl. It's been a pleasure.
2: Yeah, thank you, Carl. Thanks, boys.
0: Damien. Jake. I think Carl is a really interesting character. You know what I worry about, though, is that we have people join us time and time again saying there's no arrival, there's no yet, as Matthew McConaughey said. I'm just concerned he's putting so much um, emphasis on this triple world champion tag. What Like, he's already done it twice at two different weights. So what will change suddenly when he does it for a third time?
2: Yeah, I think boxing is one of those sports, Jake, where it's littered with people that um, have deceived themselves. I mean, part of it is deceive, Like you said, when you're hurt in the ring, you've got to pretend that you're not. When you're you're feeling those nerves before you walk into uh, the arena, you've got to pretend that you're supremely confident. So deception is part of the makeup of all great fighters. And I'm like you, right? I'm concerned that sometimes fighters can deceive themselves in thinking that just one more fight will cement my legacy. Whereas I think there's a element of listening to Cal you go, you've achieved everything you ever wanted to do. People will be speaking about you in glowing terms in 10, 20, 30 years already. That you're right. I think sometimes investing in one particular outcome isn't always healthy,
0: but you know he talks about the fact that he was a boxer from a really young age, almost too young. He said to us, um "The problem is if that's all you know, you can have no fear stepping into a ring, but you can have fear when you no longer get the opportunity to step into a ring."
2: Yeah, yeah, that's really it, again it's a it's a fascinating one that I think a lot of our conversations uh, come back to that interview we did with Johnny Wilkinson, whereas if you define yourself in in one particular sphere, you spend the rest of your life looking back over your shoulder once you no longer do it. And I think what is really significant about Carl is he's a lad that's come from a tough working class area, and it's the characteristics of being diligent, hardworking, self-aware that have made him successful. It just happens to have been in boxing. But I think when he eventually takes the time to analyse his life and his own story and his characteristics. He'll see that their characteristics he's going to take through with him into the next stage and hopefully he'll find something where he can be equally successful and have equal impact.
0: And I guess it was interesting for you as, as someone that comes from a boxing family.
2: Yeah, I, feel, I I find it a real privilege to be around boxing. I mean, that's my sport. I grew up where my dad was a boxing coach and I grew up around fighters from being a really young lad. And I've got the ultimate respect for it. I think it is, a, as I said before, it's a sport that doesn't just develop character, it reveals it. And I think it's a place where what you do in the shadows uh is shown under the spotlight of a ring. And I think that's why it was a privilege to speak to Carl. I think he's a good man uh doing good things. Top man. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Jake. Real privilege. Thank you.
0: Well, I really hope that you enjoyed that episode. As always, it makes such a difference to us if you can rate and review the High Performance Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. It's kind of a difficult one to explain, but the way the algorithms work, it just means that the more that you can rate and review, then the more people see us and the more impact that we can have. And that is what this podcast is about. Me and Damien have said it time and time again. This podcast is about the outcome not about the income and I saw a really nice quote this week that I just wanted to share with you very quickly and it basically said that you've got two choices in life you can either mold yourself to fit the world around you or you can force the world around you to fit you and I think if you can try and be the second person then that is the answer in this life because there's going to be no progress in the world if you just constantly fit the way the world already is The only way we get progress, the only way we advance, the only way we move forward, the only way we create change is by forcing the world to adapt to you. So if I was to give you one message to take away from this week's episode and from the High Performance Podcast as a whole, it is just continue to be you. Don't feel you need to mould to fit the world. Make the world fit you and just make sure that your intentions are good. If your intentions are good, then it's absolutely fine for the world to fit around you. And Eddie Jones made some brilliant points as well on another episode that came out on Monday. If you haven't listened to it yet, do check out the England rugby coach, Eddie Jones, talking about exactly that, being yourself in a world where it's so easy not to be um and that's it thanks very much for joining us for this second episode of the week don't forget on friday we're also going to be releasing our short little extra bite-sized clip of the high performance podcast just to give you that little boost into the weekend but thank you so much to lotus cars for their hard work on this episode thanks very much to finn ryan at rethink audio thanks to hannah and will who are part of the high performance podcast team of course my co-host and uh, professor extraordinaire Damien hughes but most of all thank you to you. Without you, we are not having the kind of impact that this podcast has created. See you for another episode very soon. Have a great day.